Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 10. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at Beethoven's first two piano concertos. It was only natural that Beethoven would turn to the piano concerto to present himself to a wider audience. It was his instrument of choice, one with which he was rapidly acquiring a sterling reputation as a performer. And he may have considered that a concerto was in some ways a less formidable undertaking than a symphony, which as a genre was so heavily weighted down with tradition. These concertos are in three movements, fast, slower, fast, and the first movement makes use of the so-called sonata or sonata allegro form, which we've seen in other Beethoven first movements in earlier episodes. In those episodes, we saw that the sonata allegro form begins with an exposition in which the first subject or theme, sometimes after a slower introduction, is introduced in the tonic key. Then there is a modulatory transition in which we move to the key of the dominant, if we started in a major key, or if we started in a minor key, the key of the relative major. Upon arriving in this new key, we hear another contrasting subject or theme. Then we may have a clearly identifiable closing section and or codetta in the same key, which will lead us to the end of the exposition. Now, we've already seen in earlier episodes that this description of the sonata form, although close to the typical textbook definition, is really too neat and tidy to properly describe all the variants that we're going to encounter as we listen to actual compositions. For example, even before the turn of the 19th century, we've seen Beethoven introduce multiple keys, albeit briefly, on the way to the key of the dominant or relative major. And he does not always necessarily arrive at the proper second key, at least not initially, even when he presents his second subject. So, all sorts of variations of the sonata form can and do exist, not just in Beethoven's music, but also in the music of Haydn and Mozart and others. For a concerto, the situation is even a little bit more complicated, because concerto movements based on sonata form typically feature a double exposition, which I'll explain in a minute. Further complicating the matter is that even at the end of the 18th century, there are still vestiges of the Baroque alternation of solo and tutti sections mixed in with the newer sonata concept. We'll see how these alternations between tutti sections and solo sections play out when we get to the musical excerpts of the second piano concerto in B-flat major, which we're going to look at first. But in regard to the so-called double exposition, let me start by making just a few points. The first exposition is generally, at this point in history, for the orchestra alone. It presents a series of subjects or themes, some of which may also appear in the second exposition, which is given over to the soloist, often with orchestral accompaniment. Strictly speaking, this first exposition does not modulate to the key of the dominant, and then stay there for the rest of the section. If it presents multiple themes, and it almost certainly will, most will be in the original tonic key. But you can already guess that the situation will probably be more complicated than that. For example, what late 18th century composer would restrict him or herself to just the tonic key for all that time? Composers will feel compelled to engage in some modulatory activity because of the need to provide new coloristic and harmonic lenses with which to show off their thematic ideas. 
So, even though some explanatory diagrams of the late 18th century concerto form will make it appear that the composer will be locked into the tonic key for the entire first exposition, that is simply not going to be the case. It is true, however, that in this period, the composer is unlikely to lock into any non-tonic key for any great length of time, and they will not simply modulate to the key of the dominant and just stick there for the rest of the exposition. Although, it's safe to say, based on earlier Beethoven sonata forms, we've already heard that that wasn't going to happen anyway. Okay, on to the first exposition of the Piano Concerto No. 2 in B-flat major, Opus 19. Although published after the first concerto, Beethoven had begun work on this one first, perhaps as early as 1788, and most of it had been completed before the first published concerto, and it was in fact performed first. The first movement is in common time and makes use of a standard orchestra for the period, consisting of flutes, oboes, bassoons, a pair of horns, and strings. The first exposition begins forte with an energetic, quasi-militaristic opening phrase outlining a triad presented in unisons and octaves, featuring dotted eighth and sixteenth note rhythms moving up and down the tonic triad. Here's a simplified example. This little two-bar phrase is answered by first violins with a softer, more wistfully lyrical phrase, a fairly common pairing. We'll call this idea, both parts, Orchestra One, although the two parts will in fact be split up later on. Both phrases are then repeated starting on the dominant. Then a new melodic idea is introduced, quietly, again in the first violin, with the other strings providing harmonic support. Here is a simplified example. As you heard, the second measure leans into a yearning chromatic non-harmonic tone, which will be more obvious when I play an actual excerpt. And there is a notable use of almost sentimental-sounding chromaticism elsewhere in the four-bar phrase as well. As such, this theme has a very different quality than the first idea we encountered. We'll call it Orchestra Two. The second four-bar phrase is a slightly less chromatic variant of the first, which begins up an octave. Whereas the first idea, Orchestra One, was very simple harmonically, really just tonic and dominant chords, this one is a bit more varied, but still unremarkable, except perhaps for the expressive chromaticism which floats above the harmonic bedrock. After this more lyrical, almost sentimental theme, we return to the first half of Orchestra One, the military-sounding dotted rhythm triadic motive, but it is now paired with a measure of separated eighth notes, which also move up and down a series of triads. To see how all of this fits together, 
Let's hear an actual performance of the first 30 measures of the movement. Near the end of my excerpt, you could hear a new, very dramatic passage, studded with sforzandos, some aggressive dissonances in the first violins, and a clear attempt to undermine the prevailing tonality of B-flat major. The passage stabilizes for a while in F minor, where Beethoven brings back the dotted rhythm idea from the first half of Orchestra I and develops it briefly. Then, after a new linking phrase that will become more important later on, the second half of Orchestra One, the lyrical response second phrase, is brought back and developed, although, like the first phrase of Orchestra One, it sounds very different now in F minor. Because this new dramatic passage has in fact brought about a key change here, it would be only natural to compare it to a modulatory transition passage in a typical sonata form. The fact that it brings about a modulation to F minor rather than F major the expected dominant key, shouldn't surprise us much, because we know that Beethoven sometimes plays fast and loose with modes and key relationships. Besides, we may not be finished modulating yet. Here's another excerpt picking up from where the last one finished. The repeated octaves on C you heard right at the beginning of that excerpt seem to suggest the dominant chord in F minor. Hardly surprising, since we've been operating in F minor for a few measures. But, as you heard, those repeated Cs did not resolve to F minor. They resolved up a half-step in what might be called a deceptive cadence to land us in D-flat major. And in that new key, we then heard the second phrase from Orchestra One the lyrical response phrase, played and repeated on different pitch levels, alternating with that new linking motive I mentioned a minute ago. And when all is said and done, Beethoven does not stay in D-flat major. He moves first to its relative minor, B-flat minor, and then finally in the direction of B-flat major. So, in a way, it was all a ruse. 
We started in B-flat major and we're ending up there after some interesting side trips back on the first phrase from Orchestra 1, or at least the rhythmic pattern of that first phrase, alternating with the triadic eighth notes I played earlier. We don't actually stay in B-flat major continuously from here to the end of the orchestral exposition, and there are actually echoes of the Orchestra 2 theme that pop up here and there as well, including just a few bars before the orchestral exposition comes to a close. But I want to move on now to the second exposition, the soloist's exposition. The orchestra drops out for the opening four bars of the soloist exposition, leaving the pianist alone to introduce this new theme, which we'll call Piano One. You'll notice a couple of things about these opening measures. First of all, the strings sneak in quietly after four bars to lend some harmonic support. But more importantly, the theme itself bears a family resemblance to a couple of ideas we've heard before. First of all, the lead-in phrase, featuring a lower neighbor tone and a descending triad, resembles to some extent the idea which I referred to earlier as the new linking motive although the articulation markings are different here, and that in itself can give a motive or phrase a whole new identity. Also, and perhaps of greatest importance, the phrase starting on the first full measure, which also begins with dipping down to a lower neighbor tone, but then begins to move up the scale, bears some resemblance to the second part of Orchestra 1, the lyrical response phrase. This new phrase dominates the soloist's first statement, being heard four times on various pitch levels in the first eight measures. So, if this new theme, presented by the piano, seems vaguely familiar, it's not surprising. Close to the end of my excerpt, you also heard a miniature 2D section, in which the strings, against sustained notes in bassoons and horns, offers up a quaint little idea, really quite Mozartian, which serves both as a tail to the soloist's first section and a link to the second its most prominent characteristics being its repeated eighth notes and staccato markings. Another solo section follows, a little longer at 22 bars, beginning securely in B-flat major. The pianist is featured, of course, but the strings continue to supply a demure accompaniment. The pianist's initial thematic material is familiar, drawing on the first part of Orchestra One, the military-sounding dotted rhythm idea, and the second part from the repeated staccato eighth note motive we encountered in the miniature 2D section I just mentioned. These ideas are repeated in A minor after a connecting scale passage pushes us toward that new key, and before long, both readily identifiable thematic elements are lost in a swirl of 16th note passage work. Soon a sequential passage has delivered us to G minor, the relative minor key, but we are soon on our way to F major, the expected key of the dominant. So what we were unable to achieve in the first orchestral exposition, the arrival of F major, we have achieved now in the soloist's exposition, and the pianist celebrates the event with a sweeping multi-octave scale line, 
before immediately turning it back over to the orchestra for another tutti section. We'll hear it from the beginning of the second solo section to its conclusion. The tutti section is again brief and introduces a somewhat new thematic element. Here's a simplified example of the first four measures. Since it's being introduced in the soloist's exposition, we'll call it Piano 2 even though we hear it first in the orchestra. After eight measures, the piano takes this new theme up, although in its version, the second group of descending eighth notes are replaced by triplets. Here is an excerpt beginning with the orchestra's introduction of this new theme in F major and including the pianist's variant of the same theme. At the end of my excerpt, you may have noticed a familiar motive pop up, first in the piano and then in the oboe. It's the linking phrase we heard earlier in the transition of the first exposition. And that linking phrase performs more or less the same function it did the first time around. It helps to deliver us to the key of D-flat major, where the pianist introduces a new theme, one characterized initially by a descending leap of a fifth followed by an ascending leap of a fourth, both in half notes, before moving on to descending scale passages. Although this new theme is anchored by a pedal on D-flat for several bars, it turns out not to be tonally stable, and in fact, the key works quickly back to F major. From that point, the soloist is occupied for some time by rapid-scale passages in right and left hands, and quoting some of the motives from the original transition over minimal orchestral accompaniment. We encounter some dramatic exchanges between pianist and orchestra as we continue, the pianist pronouncements generally soft, and the orchestra's rather noisy at times. 
an emphatic cadence on F major leads us to a final 2D section, which basically fills the same role as the codetta section in a conventional sonata form, and takes us to the end of the exposition. There's no double bar and repeat indicated here, because, after all, we've already heard two expositions, and it's time to move on now to the development section. As you would imagine, the development section is shared by soloist and orchestra, but it's the pianist that starts it out by quoting the first theme from the soloist exposition, which we called Piano One. After a while, the pianist abandons the theme and begins a series of interlocking triadic arpeggios as the key of F major begins to be undermined and we appear to be heading toward G minor. But that key is sidestepped in a manner reminiscent of the first exposition, and we suddenly find ourselves in E-flat major, with the orchestra offering up a theme very much like the one we first encountered originally in D-flat major, one based in part on what I earlier referred to as the lyrical response phrase from Orchestra One. Let's hear that much. From that point on in the development section, we encounter multiple exchanges of motives between soloist and orchestra in what is only a modestly successful attempt to generate a little tension. The recapitulation does not reveal a lot of surprises. All the major themes are accounted for, sometimes decorated with some new embellishments from the pianist. We do not stay in the original tonic key of B-flat major for the entire recapitulation. At the point where we originally found our way to D-flat major, we now find ourselves in G-flat major, at least for a little while. The final orchestral 2D section has us securely back in B-flat major and, as is typical, pauses with a fermata on a tonic 6-4 chord to allow for the soloist cadenza. Then a final 2D spurt of just six bars finishes off the movement fortissimo. The slow movement, marked adagio, is in E-flat major, the key of the subdominant, and whose primary theme, presented first by the orchestra, evokes the solemn lyricism of Mozart's magic flute.
But as you heard, that lyricism is interrupted in measure 5 by a crescendo into a sforzando accent and a very ceremonial-sounding dotted rhythm figure spread across the entire orchestral texture. A sense of serenity is to some extent reclaimed by a new melodic statement from the first violin, one that begins with an ear-catching ascending leap of a seventh. But the melodic identity of this new statement quickly becomes lost in a series of sweeping 32nd note scale flourishes, punctuated by 16th note staccato figures, and finally by the ceremonial-sounding dotted rhythm figure heard earlier. Then the soloist takes over in what the score still indicates to be part of the opening 2D section, after providing its own swirling and undulating descending flow of 32nd notes as an introduction. The pianist version of this theme, or at least the first five measures of it, is predictably more nimble and ornate. The orchestra interrupts with an ascending tonic triad as if to give its blessing to the soloist's efforts, and then the pianist begins anew up an octave. This time, the opening theme is treated much more freely, with the ever-expanding decorative arabesques completely obscuring the original melodic framework after the second measure. The underlying harmonies have also changed, allowing for a quick tonicization of C minor and then B flat major, the dominant of the original key, each chord in the series dropping a fifth or ascending a fourth to the one after it. Let's hear that much from the pianist's first entrance. As you heard near the end of my excerpt, the orchestra continues to comment on the proceedings, often returning stylistically to the solemn lyricism of the opening measures of the movement. And the pianist will not infrequently echo those comments before proceeding on to its considerably more ornate deconstructions of the original melody. There is even a miniature written-out cadenza for which the original melody is but a distant memory. The theme does return in a more clearly recognizable form later in the movement in an orchestral 2D section, but even there it is used more as a starting point for a modulation than as an opportunity for reminiscence. It's quite a nice movement, but we'll move on now to the finale in 6-8 B-flat major and marked Molto Allegro, a vigorous rondo known for the repeated offbeat sforzando accents in the refrain theme. The piano presents the eight-bar theme first, and it's then taken up by the entire orchestra, which then closes with a little cadential tag, again featuring offbeat accents.
After a brief pause, we hear the transition to the first episode, a generally unremarkable one, which begins with accented chords in the orchestra, alternating with ascending scales employing rapid octave leaps in the piano. As we proceed, we hear swirling passages in octaves in the piano against some new staccato motives in the orchestra, which look ahead to the first episode, another sprightly tune which the pianist introduces. Then, orchestra and piano collaborate on an even friskier version of the theme featuring accented lower neighbor tones. Here is the end of the transition and the first episode. In the last part of my excerpt, you heard the introduction of a contrasting theme in the orchestra, with the woodwinds prominently displayed. This is answered by the pianist, and our first thought may be that this is actually the middle section of the episode, and we'll be heading back to the first part any second. But after the idea is developed briefly and rather colorfully, we seamlessly cross over into the retransition that will take us from the key of the dominant, F major, back to the tonic of B-flat major, where the refrain theme is reintroduced. We won't hear all of the refrain theme as it returns, but we will hear the clever little episode 2 that follows it in G minor. It's also 8 bars long and again features offbeat accents. After a quick modulatory transition provided by the orchestra, the theme is presented again in a slightly revised version in C minor and then an altered version of the modulatory transition deposits us, unexpectedly, in B-flat minor. The idea is there extended a bit, and we soon find ourselves back in B-flat major with the return of the refrain theme. We'll hear part of the transition leading to episode 2, which prepares us for the new key of G minor, and episode number 2 itself, which begins in that key.
We later hear the final refrain extended into something of a coda, where we encounter some new pianistic effects. But as usual in such things, the orchestra has the last word with the final cadential tag. We, however, are going on to the first concerto in C major, actually the second in terms of composition date, which Beethoven himself judged to be a superior work. Published in 1800, it's generally assumed that Beethoven had begun work on it in 1795. The orchestra is comparable to the one used for Concerto No. 2, but adds trumpets, timpani, and clarinets, the last of these playing a particularly important role. The first movement is in common time and marked allegro con brio. As usual, it begins with an orchestral tutti, rather softly at first. The initial thematic statement is very formal-sounding, presenting a motive in first violins that starts on the tonic and leaps up an octave for three repeated staccato notes. After a C major scale sweeps upward in 16th notes in the second bar, the upper C moves up a fourth by step and then starts back down, all in staccato quarter notes and harmonized in block chords by the other strings. In measure 5, we hear a variant of the opening phrase, now starting a step higher, ending this time on the dominant chord rather than the tonic. A contrasting, slightly more lyrical and plaintive idea is heard in measure 9, when the subdominant chord is introduced, and we begin a crescendo up to fortissimo. Then the first idea returns, much more robustly, with the winds extending the texture upward and the timpani adding their forceful accents. It's a fairly unremarkable opening statement, but certainly a stately and dignified one, which takes on a more military spirit with the introduction of trumpets and timpani when the idea is repeated. Let's hear that much. As you heard, the more robust version of the original idea eventually gives way to a transition passage, rather heraldic in nature, but with the ascending flurries of sixteenth notes taking on ever greater importance. An important motive based on repeated patterns of descending sixteenth notes also asserts itself as we proceed, often coinciding with sforzando accents. Not surprisingly, this transition sometimes gives the impression that it has every intention of modulating to the dominant, but of course in the end it doesn't, and eventually it seems that we've come right back to the original tonic key of C major for the introduction of the second major subject or theme.
The second subject, only four bars long, is quite a pleasant one. It's presented in the first violins and begins with a half note on the fifth scale degree, which is then embellished by lower and upper neighbor tones in eighth notes before beginning a scale-wise descent that reaches down an octave within the first two bars. The second two bars begin on the tonic note with a couple of staccato quarter notes, which are themselves embellished by an eighth note figure, and finishes with an expressive, non-harmonic tone leaning into the dominant. So pleasant, but unremarkable. The more remarkable thing is that the second subject is presented initially in E-flat major, a key which is quite remote from C major, but in line with Beethoven's increasing interest in mediant-related keys, meaning keys located a third away, a major third or minor third, from the previous key. Here's an excerpt beginning right at the end of the previous transition, where we still appear to be in the key of C major. Obviously, our new theme is not in the key of E-flat major for very long. It soon gives way to a brief transition passage, which moves the key to F minor, where it is presented again by the first violins, now a step higher. A second transition moves the key up another step to G minor, where the theme is first repeated and then extended by a repetition of the first measure on different pitch levels to take us back to C minor. So, in a sense, we're right back where we started, in C, although for the moment it's C minor rather than C major. By the way, right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the introduction of a new transition motive, somewhat related to the second subject, which Beethoven will use to imply more modulation. And he will do it rather noisily, combining this new motive with echoes from the second subject as the full orchestra drives toward the closing section. But when the closing section arrives, it will, not surprisingly, turn out that all the sound and fury has accomplished very little, and we're back in C major. Here is the closing section, initially featuring oboes and horns, but soon with all the winds contributing prominently, leading to a brief swirling codetta, followed by the ceremonious-sounding final cadence on C major, which marks the end of the first exposition.
The soloist exposition begins with the pianist's introduction of a new theme in C major, 12 measures long in its initial presentation, with measures 3 and 4 representing an embellished variant of the first two measures, returning us to tonic. The next four bars are taken up with presenting a more expansive phrase that starts with the ascending arpeggiation of the tonic chord starting on G, peaking on the upper octave, and gradually meandering back down the scale. That phrase is then repeated in a variant which reaches even higher in the penis range with short motivic bursts before descending in a cascade of sixteenths as the orchestral strings enter beneath it. As you heard, when this new theme cadences on the tonic, the orchestra enters fortissimo with the octave leap motive from the opening 2D section of the movement. Right afterward, and accompanied more demurely by the strings, the soloist launches into a series of descending arpeggios that in the end fall four octaves from the starting point. Upon reaching the bottom of these epic arpeggios, the pianist introduces some new ideas, including some repeated staccato notes ornamented with grace notes, some new figuration patterns, and some octave leap patterns of its own, some complete with syncopated weak beat accents. Meanwhile, the soloist threatens a series of modulations, first to A minor and in the end to G minor, where oboes and bassoons introduce some new melodic fragments. Not surprisingly, the stay in G minor is short-lived, and soon we are in the key of G major, the expected dominant, where the orchestral 2D section brings back the second main theme of the first exposition. Here's an excerpt showing the tail end of the transition from the pianist's new theme, still in tonic but starting to modulate and introduce some of its new transitional ideas, to the orchestra's presentation of its original second theme, now in the key of the dominant, with which the soloist soon joins in.
Right at the end of my excerpt, you could hear that the key of G major is abandoned, the flutes and bassoons primarily charged with leading us astray, first to E-flat major and then later to G minor, although the soloist is soon along for the ride. But the ride is a brief one, and soon another 2D section is upon us, back in G major, with the orchestra quietly presenting the theme from the closing section of the first exposition. The pianist then joins with its own very busy version of the theme, still in G major, after which it takes off on its own journey, including brief visits to other tonal areas, complete with staccato right-hand chords with off-beat sforzando accents against undulating scale patterns in sixteenth notes and staccato triplets, among other things, as we head to the final 2D section that brings us to a rousing conclusion of the second exposition. It's all quite impressive, especially the variety of pianistic devices Beethoven throws at us without losing the sense of continuity or momentum. Here is just a taste of it. The development section is fairly brief and rather subtle in many ways. It starts quietly by quoting the opening measure of the movement in the strings against an expressive, sustained countermelody in the oboe. It wastes no time in leaving G major behind with a series of fortissimo chords moving to E flat major for the first entrance of the pianist, who begins with euphonious triplet arpeggio figures with minimal orchestral accompaniment. These soon give way to streams of quarter note chords, sometimes in contrary motion, staccato triplets, chromatic scales, and a variety of other techniques and sonorities. Here's an excerpt.
After flirting with a number of new keys, as in most development sections, we return to the original tonic with a fortissimo vengeance at the start of the recapitulation. It does not, of course, remain there throughout, but all of the familiar themes are presented in the tonic with just enough variety to keep things interesting. We'll move on now to the slow movement in A-flat major and marked largo. It is again a very expressive movement, characterized on the one hand by the reasonably somber and restrained tone of its initial melodic materials and the ornateness associated with the later development of those materials. The piano begins softly, accompanied by even softer chords in the strings. Here's a simplified version of the first two bars, the most stable thematic element in the movement. As you heard, the melody begins on the third of the tonic chord and on B3 moves up a step to its neighbor tone, a dissonance against the tonic chord below it. It then descends by step in eighth notes before, in the second bar, leaping back up to the same neighbor tone and then arpeggiating down the dominant seventh chord from there. It's a simple, compact gesture, but one that immediately hints at the emotive tone that lies ahead. The next two bars are more elaborate. Beginning on the tonic after a pickup note on the dominant, the melody moves up the scale with a combination of skips and turns before falling by step to an expressive non-harmonic tone back on the dominant chord of E-flat major. These four bars are followed by four more, which begin with a variant of the first measure, but then proceed on to a partially new idea as we move to the subdominant chord for the first time. The entire eight-measure statement then returns to tonic, ending on an accented dissonance. A contrasting melodic idea is then presented quietly in the strings against an elegant countermelody in the clarinets. It begins in a lyrical mode, like the first theme, but soon crescendos into a dotted rhythm forte exclamation, which is then echoed quietly by clarinets and bassoons. This gesture is then repeated and leads into the orchestra's presentation of its somewhat varied and simplified version of the first four bars of the piano's original thematic statement, with the primary honors going again to the clarinets. We'll hear it from the first 2D section, the orchestra's contrasting theme continuing on to the orchestra's version of the piano's original theme. 
Near the end of my excerpt, you heard the pianist taking over again from the orchestra with a highly ornamented version of the last half of its opening theme, but tweaked slightly to aim it in the direction of F major, which we soon hear as the dominant of the new key of B flat major. Then, after the piano's contribution, you heard just a little of the beginning of a brief tutti section, which reinterprets B flat as the dominant of E flat and delivers us there. What follows is an elegant duet between piano and clarinet, of which we'll hear just a little bit. As we proceed through the movement, there are some darker passages where the gentle lyricism is adapted to A-flat minor, and fluctuating dynamics seem to take us briefly into another world. But this soon dissipates, and the original themes return, eventually, in the original key. Beethoven's writing for clarinet here is particularly exquisite, and he never seems to run out of new arabesques and decorative variants for the piano. We'll move on now to the finale, another rondo, a great one, in C major, two-four time, and marked allegro. It's hard to explain the terrific impact this music makes by describing the musical materials that Beethoven employs to make it. The melodic ideas are far from unique or complex, beginning with the initial descending three-note cell introduced by an upbeat, and the harmonic framework is initially little more than primitive. But the rhythmic vitality, the energy and exuberance embodied in the opening statement is absolutely transporting. At the end of my excerpt, after both pianist and orchestra have taken their turn with the dynamic refrain theme, you heard a brief transition in the woodwinds, based on a rustic, fanfare-like triadic motive, and then the first solo section, dominated by sixteenth-note scale passages and short orchestral accompanying motives. This takes us to the key of G major, and eventually to the first episode. Here, first violins and oboes lead the way, with another simple but infectious idea, delivered quietly, except for some rather jolting sforzando accents on the last eighth note of each measure. 
Here's the end of the first transition, going into the first episode. After the orchestra presents the new eight-measure theme, the soloist takes it up against busy 16th note accompaniment in the left hand. After a cleverly syncopated cadential tag, the orchestra enters with a brief transitional theme, transporting us quickly and almost magically to E-flat major, where the pianist re-enters, presenting the first part of the theme low in the left-hand range, but moving up three octaves for the more coquettish second part, and then alternating between the two ranges thereafter as the idea is extended and developed. The next 2D section, with a series of powerful unison passages, moves us up by step from G to C while anticipating the next new thematic idea, which we're about to hear from the pianist in the key of F minor, at least for the first few measures. This idea is not completely new, but serves as an effective bridge or retransition to the refrain theme. Here is that idea introduced by the pianist in F minor, but soon moving back in the direction of C major for the return of the refrain. We're running a little long today, but I do want to play some of the next episode, another very colorful one, this time in A minor. There's no real transition this time. The refrain theme simply cadences on C major, and a beat later, the piano starts up in the new key. It's distinctively rhythmic in nature again, based on a five-note motive starting on the fifth of the A minor scale and consisting of three upbeat sixteenth notes, the second a lower neighbor, followed by a leap up a fourth and then right back down again. This very catchy motive is repeated and varied again and again until the final measure of the eight-bar theme. Then, the whole eight bars is repeated again, softer this time, but still with periodic sforzando accents, against some interjections from flutes and bassoons. After four bars, the tune disintegrates into a swirling pattern of sixteenth notes as we crescendo up to forte. Then a new idea is introduced, more lyrical in nature, mostly scale-wise in structure, and tasked with taking us from E minor, where the previous theme concluded, quickly through a series of tonicizations that ultimately returns us to C major. This new transitional passage is then taken up by the oboes and bassoons, 
but this time leads us back to A minor, where the piano again takes charge with the original theme. This back and forth goes on for some time, but we'll only listen to some of it. It's one of many lively and extremely likable melodies in this rondo, which provides the perfect capstone for this underrated concerto. We're going to stop there today, but for our next episode, we're going to look at one of Beethoven's most interesting early works incorporating winds, the quintet in E-flat major, Opus 16.